Thank you and good morning. It's so great to be back, but it looks different. So well done on the faith to build this place. Let's now have the same faith to build church locally and see so many people come to know Jesus. But I don't know about you, but I find it annoying, unintelligent, and somewhat crass when people use sermons to advertise the ministry they're involved in. However, I'm just sensing you want to hear a bit more about the EA. So three minutes on the EA, then we'll move on. Is that right? Okay, the Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims. Unite the church in reaching the lost and give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. 176 years on, they remain our two aims. So either we're very focused or we're not very good at our job. I like to think it's the first. But that evangelical term, it's not redundant, but it needs redeeming a little. What does it mean? It means four things. One, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptize culture. And start changing culture with the truth and the pages of the word of God. Secondly, we believe the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. You get on your knees and you meet your saviour. And fourthly, we believe in being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals led the abolition of the slave trade, provided education before anyone else. In recent times, they've come up with and delivered Christians Against Poverty, food banks, street pastors. And we've got a few more opportunities in front of us now. And the Evangelical Alliance is a membership organization made up of 3,000 churches like this one, about 500 organizations and about 18,000 individuals who say, let's come together to make Jesus known. And what we want to do is keep speaking up and speaking out on the issues that matter. We are a gospel alliance. That's why I've got a little table out there. Of course I have. You're all thinking I'm Del Boy anyway, so it fits. <laughs> on that table, if you want one of these, take it. It's called Speak Up. We've just done this little resource with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship because people in the UK thought they couldn't talk about Jesus at work or in the streets and stuff. It's not true. We've got more freedom to share the gospel in the UK than just about any country on earth. Here's the thing. Use those freedoms or your children and your children's children won't have them. So the thing is, it's not the law stopping us. It's the fact we're probably chickens. So we did this really short, really simple, with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship, what are your freedoms to share the gospel, online, at work, and anything else? And you know what? Faith is a protected characteristic in law. So the number one way to make sure you can share your faith is to share it as often as possible. Because then it's not proselytizing, it's just a normal part of your life. Love you to say one of those. But secondly, I need to be honest and say, as a membership organization, we are going to go for it in this next decade. We are absolutely going to go for it, standing firmly on God's word and speaking up and speaking out into culture. Just this week in uh, Westminster Parliament, you know, the second parliament of the UK. We just this week, we were there, and there were, there were members of parliament from every major party in the UK as we launched in parliament a Stories of Hope resource about the cost of living crisis, with stories from what the church is doing all over the country to inspire and help policymakers and MPs to realize the church is here, but you better let us preach the gospel and do what we're doing. There was a great story in there from King's Church in Aberdeen. You know, going back to the summer, stories of hope we first launched out in the Scottish Parliament and the government said, this is what the church is doing, this is where we are. We will speak up and speak out. We also speak on the difficult issues. We have uh, spoken with the Scottish Parliament on the Gender Recognition Act. That's been as much fun as you could imagine. But we've got to speak up on what matters. We've done an awful lot and continue to do an awful lot with the Westminster government on conversion therapy. We will stand up and speak up on what matters, but we need your voice to come with us. 
You see, we want to unite the church and go forward, but it's the membership that really matters in this next season. The church membership's been wonderful for years, but the individual membership, there's a growing skepticism in our culture towards institutions. We're getting asked a lot, what about the individual membership? We need to get that to 50,000 to be in a serious place with the corridors of power. We're currently at 18. So I unashamedly ask you, if you're not a personal member of the EA, would you consider becoming one? It's a cup of coffee a month. It's £3 a month to be a member of the EA. We're not going to write to you and ask you to put it up. It's not about money, it's about unity. And you can sign up as an individual or a couple. If you're married, don't even check with your spouse. Sign up as a couple. It counts as two when we're in the Scottish Parliament or the Westminster Parliament or, dare I say, the Senate or Stormont, if it ever regathers. But we would love you to consider standing with us, giving your name to what we're doing as we move forward. We've got to make Jesus known, but we've got to do it together. And there is power in togetherness. And if you do, I'll give you three presents. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest. I'm giving the next decade of my life to being the leader of the Evangelical Alliance, seeking to unite the church to reach the lost and speak up and speak out on the issues that matter, whatever the price tag to me personally. I would do anything for you to stand with us. So if you need a kidney, see me afterwards. Anyway, um, the three gifts I will give you this morning are these. First, unleashed the Acts Church today. My wife Anne and I wrote this. What does it mean to be the Acts Church, living in words, works and wonders today? Secondly, as a thank you, seven sessions on unity for individual or group study. How can we be united? The world might know hope. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And finally, if this doesn't swing it, I'm genuinely out of ideas. It's an EA key ring. Bear with me. This on the top is a fake detachable quid with our logo on. When you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful in this cashless society that you join the Evangelical Alliance. When you need a locker, happy days. All I ask is each time you use yours, would you pray the three things I genuinely pray each time I use mine? I pray that the church in this nation would be united in reaching the lost. I pray that the voice of the church in this nation would be heard effectively on every layer of society. And I pray that together in our day, we might make Jesus known. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you would forgive me for overselling in your house. But you know how pure the motive is, even if the method is interesting. But Lord, as we come to your word now, we invite you to speak. Lord, whether it's through me or in spite of me, we invite you to speak to your people this morning. Well, and we do pray, Lord, that your church would be united. I do, Lord, I pray that over the whole UK, but specifically this morning, I pray that your church in Scotland would be united in a way that draws people to you. We do pray that your church's voice would be heard. And we do pray we'd make you known. And we pray this morning you might show us some of how we might do that ourselves too. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? We're going to go to John 20 and read a few verses from the resurrection. If it's any help, it's page 933 in my Bible. John 20 verse 11 says this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. Then verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I just want to just speak this morning really, well, not I won't say really quickly because that might be false truth. But I'd just like to speak to you this morning on what is radical about Jesus and how might we be living in this season, in this very moment we find ourselves in. Because what a season we've had and what a season it's coming. The COVID season is an interesting one. People talk about it almost like church was like this before pandemic and it's now like this. I think we need to stop talking about what it was like because we're sounding like old people talking about the war. I think we need to just deal with what's in front of us because there's many other challenges coming along. But one of the things I would say about the pandemic is many of my Christian friends became sleepier in their walk with Jesus. But yet I did, do not have a non-Christian friend who's not more interested in Jesus than they were before the pandemic. They're not queuing around the corner to surrender their lives to Jesus, but they are more open and more interested. I do believe we're living in the start of a spiritual awakening for the lost in the United Kingdom. I do not believe the Lord had anything to do with a pandemic or a cost of living crisis. But what more do we need to show what's different when you stand on the rock of ages and the unchanging one in the midst of these changing cultural sounds around us? I think this is an incredible moment to be alive, but as a church, we've got to choose to be courageous. It was the last New Wine England festival before the pandemic. And I was there and I was in this large tent where the preacher was preaching at the front. He was preaching on if you want to be distinct within culture. And he did a call for people to come forward to get prayed for. I'll be honest, friends, I don't often respond to talks. I'm usually giving them. And it's the height of preaching arrogance to be the first person to go to the front to respond to your own message. And on this occasion, I went to the front and I just felt the Lord speak to me. And I felt the Lord say to me, you need to be braver in this next season. And I've got to be honest, my sinful nature looked around this tent of 6,000 and I said to the Lord, I'm doing all right compared to a bunch of these. And I felt the Lord say, don't look sideways, look upwards, you need to be braver. And I stood there at the front of this tent, I did something I don't do very often. I tend to only do it at really important moments, probably moments when you're full of joy, you know, like when England have lost a penalty shootout. And in that moment, I stood there and I wept and I wept and I wept. Not because I'm not prepared to be brave, but because it's hard to be brave. I think most of us think people are born brave. No one's born brave. Bravest person in scripture, Esther. When she goes to see the king, she risks a radical haircut. She could have had her head chopped off just for showing up. People aren't born brave, you're given a chance to be brave. And yet I didn't want to be brave. I wanted to be cool and accepted and loved. And yet I came away from there and I didn't tell a soul. I only told my wife, Anne. I didn't tell anyone else about this moment. Then we're sat on the last day of the school days, sat with our kids praying. Now, when we pray with our kids, we leave a time of silence because prayer is not a monologue, it's a conversation. What does Jesus want to say? After a few minutes, my daughter, Amelie, says, Dad, this is proper weird. It's proper weird, Dad, but Jesus wants you to be braver. Oh, all right, Lord, I get a message. Within six months, I've taken over leading the Evangelical Alliance. 
Not because I necessarily had that on my bucket list, but because it's what the Lord had in that moment. You see, he's calling us to be a braver church, but not just a braver church, because we've got to be outrageously brave, but also a kinder church. And not kindness in the way the world understands it. They think kindness is don't challenge anything, don't question anything, don't do it. If that was true, your children would have no hands. Because it would be unkind to tell them to not put them in the fireplace. Kindness is treating everyone as someone made in the image of God and loving them with the dignity and integrity they deserve as a result. And bravery is pointing out to the world that actually there's greater hope, there's greater truth, and it's Jesus. But we need to be a brave and kind church. And I think going forwards, if we're going to keep getting excited about stories from the rest of the world, we might need to change how we hold ourselves here. And what I mean by that is I think we want... The, Iran's the fastest growing church in the world. Right? My friend who runs an organization that works with the Iranian church... When they go to Turkey, they hire a Turkish hotel swimming pool. And during the day, they put on free swimming lessons for local kids so no one catches on, because Turkey's not Iran, but it's still dangerous. They've worked out between dusk and dawn, they can baptize 350 Iranians a night and the hotel don't realize. Friends, there's things going on in the church that are unbelievable. But I think for too long, we've wanted Iranian results with UK comfort. And I think actually, you do not see Iranian results with UK comfort. And as the UK gets less comfortable, I believe the church moves forward and we see something amazing. So four quick things from Jesus here that I think we should be modeling in our day. And the first is this, he breaks all the rules. Some of you see that sign and you think, very sensible, stay off the grass, obviously. Some of you are made like me. You see that sign and even though you've got brand new white trainers on and it's incredibly muddy, you must walk on the grass simply because people told you you couldn't. What are we like with rules as the church? I'm not sure we're that good at breaking them. We're good at making them. I went to Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived a lot of the time, with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. That makes me feel sorry for Jesus. He lived with a mother-in-law without being married. That's a double loss. Anyway, we went to Capernaum to visit. And there was a big sign at the door that said, your skirt or your shorts had to be below your knee. My whole family went in. And then they wouldn't let me in because my shorts were an inch above my knee. I'm six foot three. Where do you get shorts long enough to be below my knee? So they sent me out. They wouldn't let me in. I went back to the car park. I was fuming. I've come all this way. I need to get into Capernaum. I'm back in the car park. And fortunately, before I worked for the EA, I worked for Youth for Christ. So I'm down with the kids. There's something teenage boys do that is genuinely disgusting that I've never done before or since, but on that day came in handy. They do their whole boxer shorts above their trousers, right? So I just went back to the car park and I pulled my shorts down four inches and had the boxer short thing going on. Went back to the same guy on the door at Capernaum. He waves me in, says, everything's good, in you come. Three steps into Capernaum, I pulled my shorts up and we were done. Friends, do not make rules that stop people getting to Jesus that don't need to be there. It's one thing to have theology and doctrine we won't compromise on. Let's not create human rules that stop people getting to Jesus. Let's not make this the middle class faith. Let's not make it accessible only to some. Let's break the rules so we open the floodgates so everyone can come to Jesus. What I love in the passage is Jesus appears to a woman. You're thinking he's sexist. No, no, I'm talking about the culture then. In the culture they were in, if I had killed my dear friend Fred Drummond and only a woman had seen, I would have got off. Because the testimony of a woman did not count in court. That's the world we're living in here. The average Pharisee woke up every day and thanked the Lord they weren't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And yet your Jesus, my Jesus, appears to a woman as the first person to then gossip the kingdom. 
He breaks the rules that the nation had made he was in. He breaks the rules that the culture has provided that need breaking in order that everyone has an opportunity to come to Jesus. Let's break the rules that need breaking. But then secondly, he's full of surprises. He's full of surprises. There are four surprises in this passage. First one, slightly earlier in John 20, was the very first thing Jesus does when he resurrects from the dead. He starts folding up the dirty washing. He's buried in two sheets. He's resurrected from the dead. The first thing he does is he folds up a sheet. Mary and Joseph clearly raised him really well. But then at some point he thinks, hang on, I'm, re- I'm the resurrected Messiah. And leaves the other sheet unfolded, leaves the grave and cracks on with his ministry. Quite a surprise though, isn't it? Second surprise. The incarnation. The fact that God who threw the stars into space became a person for you and I is a mind-blowing surprise. As it comes to Christmas time, ask the Lord to show you afresh how mind-blowing, earth-shattering, world-changing that is. Third surprise, the resurrection. He was dead, he's alive. Do not let familiarity with the gospel message breed a contempt in your passion to share it. I ask every day, Lord, remind me what I'm saved from. Make me infectious for you. When I go to the airport later, Lord, help me bump into someone who needs to hear something of you. Make me like a new Christian. You know, the kind of person who hasn't realized you only talk about Jesus on Sunday morning when no one's listening. Make me dangerous for you. The resurrection is mind-blowing. The fact that this God who became a person for you and I grew into a man giving health to the sick, life to the dead, food to the hungry died on a cross taking everything upon himself you've ever done, ever could do, ever might do, that you could be set free from your brokenness and know life in all its fullness now as well as forever. Sometimes we talk about eternal life all the time and that's great, don't get me wrong, but I don't know how I get through tomorrow without Jesus. Life in all its fullness now too. They threw him in a grave, I've been to the garden tomb. Forgive me Fred, it was designed more for someone Fred's size than mine. So if you go to the garden tomb by the feet, they've dug out a bit to fit Jesus' body in because he's more like my height, I guess. I don't know why they did that. Now that I'm middle-aged, I know any home improvements are a sensible fiscal decision for the long term. Not for three nights when someone's not really there anyway. But you know what? If you go to the grave, the grave is empty because your Jesus, my Jesus, defeated death that we might know life. Isn't that brilliant? And I think as a church, we need to recapture our excitement about the surprise that is he was dead and now he's alive. I was asked on a radio interview recently, why are you so confident that that this Jesus is real? I said, well, he he kind of said he was going to die and rise rise again, and he did. I can't think of anything else that could possibly be more, more compelling than the fact that the God of the world gave his life for you and me, but the grave is empty because he is alive. But fourth surprise, he walks through a wall. How else does he get to the disciples? There's no wall broken, there's no window smashed, there's no door open. He walks through a wall. Even Marvel wouldn't put that in a film. It's too out there. But surprise, surprise, surprise. And I guess all I'd say to us is, isn't it time we started surprising people? I think people think they've got the measure of the church. They really haven't. Every non-Christian I meet who doesn't know a Christian has the completely wrong view of the church. Do you know the brilliant thing about that? It's so easy to warm them up because every view they've been given is so far away from what they meet in us that we start 3-0 up, not 3-0 down. And I think as a church, we need to start surprising people with our mercy, our love. One of the things I struggled with in the pandemic, there were a few, but one of them was Boris kept saying, you and your household. 
None of us need any more encouragement to just look after our own. I've been raising my kids telling them their whole life it's about extending our table than the prime minister's telling them to shrink the table. I think in this season now we need to surprise people by, by extending our table, by extending what we do for people, by being more generous, by being more loving. The nation's going to face even more pain in the years ahead. But you know what? When you live from a different kingdom, you can surprise people by what you really care about, how generous you are, and what we stand on. Jesus breaks the rules. He's full of surprises. But thirdly, he's incredibly compassionate. He's incredibly compassionate. There's this moment where I'm like, how come Mary doesn't recognize Jesus? So I'm supposed to recognize him and, he's, and hear his voice and I can't see him. He's there. How come she doesn't recognize him? And then you dig a bit deeper and you start realizing that she's facing this way. He's behind her. She's been crying for three days. So her eyes have gone a bit sort of foggy and fuzzy, you know, like they do when you cry. Also, she's been grieving. She would definitely have had long hair. And this is a day before L'Oreal, because you're worth it, was invented. So her hair's best day was worse than your hair's worst day. So add to it, this isn't her hair's best day. She's been grieving for three days. So her hair's in its worst nick. It's all over her face. It's sticking to her face. She's got her fuzzy eyes. She's looking over her shoulder. And she just makes out a male figure. Until he calls her Mary. Almost certainly not. He almost certainly calls her Miriam. Miriam is Mary in Aramaic. Why would she reply with Rabboni if he hadn't spoken in Aramaic? Now here's the context to this. They're in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, everyone speaks Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of the educated. In Jerusalem, no one would speak Aramaic. It was a more working class tongue from the Galilean region. You wouldn't speak Aramaic because it would make people think you were stupid. But Jesus is so safe in who he is, that he calls her in a way that no one else in Jerusalem would speak Aramaic other than Jesus. He calls her in that way individually, and at that point she knows Rabboni, teacher. He meets her where she is, in her need, in a way that only she would understand. What an incredible moment of compassion. And it's that compassion we need to model to those around us. You see, the danger is we treat everyone how we think we want to be treated when actually we're in a season where we need to treat people with the love and compassion they need in that moment. You know, and that saying's been going around a lot. We've all been through the same storm, but not the same boat. That's so true for the last season. It's so true of the next one. And Jesus treats people differently when they've been through the same thing. Look at Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha have the same DNA, having gone through exactly the same thing. One's overwhelmed in their mind, the other's overwhelmed in their heart. One's full of questions, the practical person. The other's full of emotions, just crying. Jesus treats them totally differently. To Mary, he cries. With Martha, he answers her questions. We need to find that compassion to treat people individually how they need to be treated in this season. But we also need to find it within the church. I think within the church, we need to have compassion for one another too. One of the bad bits of my job is I know all the rubbish of the church in the UK as well as the good. And you know what? A lot of the rubbish starts with something really small that just doesn't get dealt with. And I think as a church going into this new season, we need to just deal with stuff when it's small before it gets big. You know, I've been married for 21 years this year. I got married when I was three. And um, our wedding prep, I'll never forget it. They kept saying, never go to bed on an argument. Say sorry even when it's not your fault. You know, I'm so experienced at this. Because for 21 years, I've been saying sorry. 
all the time, and it has really been my fault. But, but all joking aside, imagine if Trinity Church never went to bed in an argument. Even today, if there's something small you need to deal with, deal with it with someone else. Don't let it grow, because the enemy gets a foothold in our unity when there's disagreement between us and we don't deal with it. Just don't go to bed on an argument. Say sorry and it's not your fault. Let's have compassion to the lost, but also to one another. So Jesus breaks the rules. He's full of surprises. He's compassionate. And finally, he's incredibly faithful. In John eleven sixteen, Thomas says, let us go with you that we might die with you. That's ironic, isn't it? That he then goes wandering off. But I do feel sorry for the disciples. According to the late John Stott, they were aged 15 to 22. So Jesus had a youth group. Can you imagine if your teenage years were written down in the most read book in human history? Makes you see it slightly differently, doesn't it? But Thomas goes wandering and misses out on Jesus visiting the disciples. Jesus is so faithful, he comes back for Thomas. Even in Thomas' unfaithfulness, Jesus comes back. Jesus is faithful time and time and time again. In Gethsemane, Jesus asks the Father three times to not go to the cross. But he's faithful to the Father's will, even when it's not what he wants. We are living in an unfaithful culture, and in this nation, we're called to be faithful to Jesus. We need to shut the back door of the church and remain followers of his the rest of our lives. We're living in a nation where people walk away from everything. Even some things that, that they didn't used to. I mean, the amount of my Christian leader friends that walking away even from a marriage or something else, it's, it's incredible. When I was a kid, the most successful shop at the end of the road was the TV repair shop. You don't repair your TV now. Even if it's 4K HD, you throw it in the bin and get a new one. No one sticks at anything. The only thing people stick at their whole life is their football team. And unless they picked Wimbledon, they got it wrong. Because Jesus supports Wimbledon. Because he cares about the marginalized, those mistreated, and he loves those who've been forced to live in exile. But anyway, we in this season need to be faithful to the Jesus who's been faithful to us. We need to stick with him the rest of our days. Be healthy Christians in an unfaithful culture pointing to Jesus. So I really believe that if we break the rules that say that this isn't for everyone and go after the least, the last, and the lost, if we surprise people with how we hold ourselves, if we are compassionate in the church and outside, and if we're faithful to Jesus, we could see something amazing. But now is the moment. I was asked to write the foreword to a book on evangelical church history, 1900 to 1950. It's a deep theological book. It was a real privilege to be asked. It was hard work to read. So I got Google thesaurus out to understand the long words. But there was one bit that stuck with me. At the end of the Second World War, throughout the UK, church attendance was massively up for 18 months. People were desperate to meet the hope that was in the church. After 18 months, it went back down below pre-Second World War levels. The diagnosis in the book was the church spent the time getting themselves comfortable, okay, and happy again. And by the time the church were comfortable, the world had lost interest in what they had. Friends, we haven't been through a war, but the last few years and the next few is the closest thing since. People are questioning their own mortality. People are wondering what happens. People are asking the questions you've been asking. They're answering the questions you've been asking for 30 years when they didn't want to know. The world is different. People are open. We at the EA did this survey in 2015. In 2015, one in five non-Christians want to know more about Jesus from a friend. In 2022, we've just done it again. One in three. That's nearly halved in that seven years. People are open. I have prayed for a revival. I'm an evangelist. I'll talk to a lamppost about Jesus. But here's the thing, friends. I have never found it as easy as right now. The ground is so ripe for harvest. And if you don't like the evangelist word, let's use the witness one. But witnessing's a muscle. And every Christian is a witness or an imposter. So let's be witnesses, eh? 
And all it takes is building up those habits of witnessing. And then when it gets hard again, we won't even notice because we'll be used to talking about Jesus. Two very quick examples, then we'll finish. Don't worry, Ian, we're nearly done. Two examples of how I know it's been easier. One, I live in northwest London. I have to because I have to be near central London. But I live in northwest London, which means I pay too much for everything. Doesn't mean it's done well, it just means it costs a lot. That includes my haircut. My haircut's not hard to do. It's not done well, it's just expensive. And so my view, I've gone to the same barber for seven years. My view has been, you're going to charge me that to cut my hair. I am going to have a right go telling you about Jesus. <laughs> for the first six years, I got absolutely nowhere. I sat there, and so much so, I was annoying him, so I just did it even more. But, you know, I'd sit there and just got nowhere at all. He was the furthest away from faith of anyone I knew. Then after the first lockdown, I went in for my haircut. He says this as I walk in. He says, I am so pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. We talked about the Lord for an hour and a half, then eventually he cut my hair. He's not come to Jesus, but I'll tell you something, he's on a journey. I had written him off as out of this. He's on a journey. Last time I was in, he talked about judgment day for an hour. It's like, it wouldn't be my choice, but if that's what we want to talk about, let's have a go. Friends, that prodigal you've given up on, that work friend you've tried before, this is ground zero. We go again. We dust ourselves down. We go again. This is not an inherited season. It's a new season. That's why I forget what came before COVID. This is a new season, and it's going to get harder for people, and therefore the light of confidence in Jesus shines brighter. Now, don't get me wrong. We are fragile, but I don't trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. I'm more fragile than I've ever been. I know it's all relative, but, but if you don't walk with a limp, you're either delusional or you live in Disneyland. But I walk with a limp with Jesus, not without him. Can you imagine facing what we face without Jesus? So I'm going to limp towards the lost, aren't you? Then the second one, I was at a funeral. This guy comes towards me. He's about 25, really muscly, really strong, in incredible shape. As he walked towards me, it was like looking in a mirror. <laughs> and he comes towards me and he starts having a go because my wife Anne and I used to do this little program on TBN. He says, why have you and your wife stopped doing your TV program? My mum loved it. She's really cross with you that you've stopped. You must do some more. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything. He said, no, you've got to do some more. My mum is cross with you. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything. He said, okay, let me tell you something. During the second lockdown, I got so bored that I watched four episodes of my mum. And I gave my life to Jesus. Now, let me explain. Because of Ofcom, you cannot do a gospel invitation on there. They, they weren't evangelistic shows. It was me and Anne talking about a Bible passage. The ground is easier right now, and my fear is that we miss it looking after ourselves when actually we should be looking out to those who don't have Jesus. I have prayed for revival for 20 years, and I am not saying it's here, but the circumstances that might make it possible might be under our nose. Let's not miss it, church. Let's go for it, out on a limb for Jesus. So I guess just as a as a very simple response. When I was at school, every school report, apart from PE, I did well at that, every other school report said the same three words, could do better. Not should, just could. And I wonder if for some of us, in our witnessing, in our speaking of Jesus, in our talking on a Monday about what we've done at the weekend, in that space, for some of us, maybe we just could do better. And there is power in corporate witness. This church is called as a family to reach this area and beyond. And I just wonder if for some of you, you feel this way, do you know what? I just would love to do better. And I'd love to say to the Lord and to my brothers and sisters here, I'd love to do better. I'd love the Lord to help me. I'd love, I'd love to, 
have a load of friends cheering me on as well. And I'd love to believe that together we might really go for this community in the name of Jesus. Because do you know what? If you haven't got Jesus, what have you got? Absolutely everything we're told to depend on has failed in the last two years. And going forwards, hope as a name, his name is Jesus. I want to see people survive a cost of living crisis. But I want to see people meet the maker who created them and discover what life in all its fullness is in a cost of living crisis or in the greatest moment on a Hawaii beach they've ever known. So if you'd love the Lord to equip you and you'd love also just to say to the Lord and one another this morning, Lord, I would love to do better in my witnessing. Help, equip, open doors. If that's you and you're able, would you just stand with me? And I think I'm just going to pray a prayer of two halves, let's say. I'm going to invite Pastor Ian to pray the second half in a moment because I'm, I'm not planning on being here next Sunday. I say not planning on it because the Lord can take me where he wants, but I'm not planning on being here next Sunday. So it'd be good for, for the leader of this space to also pray a bit of a commissioning prayer on us because this, this is a moment of faith too, isn't it? There's no condemnation in this moment. It's not about what we haven't done. It's about what we could do. It's about believing for something greater. So we say, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on your people, we pray. Would you bring a confidence in your gospel that we might not naturally carry? Would you bring a conviction? Also, Lord, I pray for an open goal of an opportunity for everyone. So obvious, so gaping. They couldn't miss it even if they wanted to. That might bring confidence. I pray that witnessing would be a normal part of our Christian life in this space. But I thank you, Lord, that we talked about that youth group you had at 12. They changed the world. Imagine how many people could be impacted by this many people saying, in this community and area, we want to be good news carriers. Lord, I want to pray that we would mourn together when it's hard. We would celebrate together when it's great. But you would lead us and guide us. And I pray, Lord, that stuff's talked about a church for a city. Would this be a church for this whole city and beyond? We are believing, Lord, that Scotland would not be in the situation it is currently. We're believing that what Pastor Ian said about this being such a secular place would not be true in the near future. We're believing, Lord, that many would come to know you, call you saviour. And we're believing as well, Lord, that you would remind your church that we are all witnesses. It's not for some, it's for all. And Lord, for those of us good at warming people up, for those of us that are good at decisions, for those who are good at disciples, we celebrate one another. It takes a body, so let's act as one. Lead us and guide us as we make you known, we pray.